Bibles open to the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth. We're, we're going to be looking at the entire book of Ruth, which I know can scare you, but it's only four chapters, not very long. But just keep your Bible ready. We're going to be flipping through Ruth, uh, looking at some verses pretty quickly. <clears throat> now, the book of Ruth is it's one of my, my favorite stories uh, in the Bible. It's also one of April's favorite stories in the Bible. It's an incredible story about God's redemption and God's love for all of humanity and for everyone and his acceptance for all who turn to him for salvation. Ruth is a beautiful love story. Now, you remember back when we looked at, at uh, Jacob and his two wives, I said it was a love story, but it was more like a lifetime movie network love story where it's kind of got some, some risque, some weird stuff in there. It never turns out good for everybody. Ruth is more like a Hallmark Channel love story where it's just sweet and beautiful and innocent and everyone loves it and it ends unhappily. And so it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful love story. But there's something that most of us don't realize about the book of Ruth. We, we know it, but we don't really take it into consideration when we're studying this book. And it's found in verse number one. It says, and it came to pass... In the day when the judges ruled. The book of Ruth takes place during the book of Judges. And if you've ever studied the book of Judges, really studied the book of Judges, it is one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Several times in the book of Judges, the Bible says there was no king in the land and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And the stories in the book of Judges are just, they're dark, they're disturbing, they're terrifying. But again, sometimes we, we veggie-tails it up. You know, in the book of Judges, we have the story of Gideon. And man, everyone loves the story of Gideon, where Gideon, you know, he takes the army to beat the Canaanites, and God says, you've got too many, so he whittles it down to 300, and then he's victorious with just 300 men by just having some lanterns and blowing some horns and breaking some faces, and man, he's victorious, and we remember the story from VeggieTales with a little vegetable hopping around, and it's a great story. But do you know what happened to Gideon? After this incredible victory, Gideon turns to idol worship, and he brings the whole nation into idol worship with him. And then there's a few Israelites that are kind of upset with him and try to rise up against him, and so he, he murders them because he didn't like them. Pretty dark ending to that great story we like to tell, that, that beautiful kind of Veggie Tales thing. And I mean, in the story, we've got, we've got a judge who has to, you know, he, he says he's going to sacrifice his daughter if God blesses him and helps him. And so we've got human sacrifice in here. We've We've got a terrible story towards the end of it, and it ends in a very dark, dark time. But Ruth has taken place kind of right around the time of Samson. And again, Samson is kind of one of those Bible stories. We tell it with our, you know, we've got the flannel graph, and it's kind of a good story. Yeah, Samson messed up, but he ends his life pretty well. But Samson was the most morally corrupt judge in the entire history of Israel. He was arrogant, he was prideful, he was promiscuous, he just ignored everything that God had commanded him to do, and he was, he was the rule or the judge during the darkest time in Israel's history. Now, that is what is happening during the book of Ruth. So we got to put it into context, because once we get into Ruth, it's just, it's a beautiful story, and there's love everywhere, and we think, man, this is great. But you got to remember, this is happening during a terrible time in the history of the nation of Israel. Now, the book of Ruth is the first book in the Bible where the word hope is used. Ruth is all about hope in dark times. But biblical hope is a lot different than what we think of as hope. To us, hope is something we want to happen, but we're not actually sure that, if it, that it will happen. I want, and I hope, UVA will beat Virginia Tech this year and, you know, get the Commonwealth Cup back and have a wonderful season and go to the ACC Championship and beat Clemson and just have a great year. I hope that happens, but I have no idea if it will, 
it probably will not. Biblical hope or hope in the Bible is something that you know will happen. It just hasn't happened yet. It's like the promise that God gave to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a great land. I'm going to do all these things for you. Abraham knew that was going to happen. It just hadn't happened yet. He knew that he was going to have a son that was going to be a blessing to the entire world that was eventually going to bring the Messiah. He knew that was going to happen, but it hadn't happened yet. And so he had hope that it was going to happen one day. It's something you look forward to with expectation and it kind of reshapes your entire outlook on life. And that's, that's the kind of hope that we see in the book of Ruth. Even though it's during an entire, a very dark time in Israel's history, we still have hope. Now, of course, again, it happens during the book of Judges. And of course, remember last week we looked at Joshua. And the book of Joshua ended with Joshua, the, the leader of Israel. He's brought Israel through the promised land, and he's, he's conquered the land, he's divided the land, and now he's about to pass on. He knows he's about to die, and so he's given kind of one last charge to Israel, and he tells them, be faithful to God, get rid of these false idols, and just walk with God every day of your life, and they say, hey, we're going to do that. And Joshua predicts, he goes, no, you won't. You're going you're to turn from God, and you're going to forget everything you've learned, and it happens. And Judges is just a cycle of Israel coming into idolatry, and forsaking God, and becoming like the Canaanites, God sending judgment, and sending enslavement, and Israel repenting, and God sending the deliverer, and then they just continue in that cycle in a downward spiral that ends in Israel being worse than the Canaanites they chased out of the land. Israel being so far from God, and so morally corrupt, that God sends a plague upon them. And in this terrible time, we have the book of Ruth. So get your Bibles up to Ruth 1. We're going to start looking through this, this story this morning. Start in verse number 1. Again, the Bible says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judea, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So Israel has gotten so far away from God that God has sent a plague upon them. They are in, now the, he's in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means literally the, the place of bread. They are in the promised land. They are in the place that God said he's going to bless the nation of Israel. They are in the place that God said is going to flow with milk and honey and it's going to be wonderful for them and incredible for them, but they have gotten so far away from God that God has sent a severe famine in the land. And so this, this man... The land is so, is, is, is so desolate, is being cursed by God, that this man says, we, we need to go somewhere else. I need to take my family from the, the land God promised us. I need to take my family from where God said he would bless us and where God said we would have you know, rivers flowing with milk and honey. I need to leave the place of God's blessing because God's not blessing us there and go somewhere else. Look what the Bible says in verse number two. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malhan and Chilion, Euphrates of Bethlehemite, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. So they, they not only leave where God has promised to bless them, it's not like they leave Bethlehem and go to another place in the promised land. They leave the promised land. They go to Moab a place inhabited by the Moabites, a place, a people that God has cursed, a people that God has said Israel should have nothing to do with. And he takes his wife and he takes his two sons. And now names in the Bible are significant. The dad's name here, Elimelech, it means my God is king. But he's not living like his God is king. He's not acting like his God is king because he's leaving the land that his God rules and protects and blesses and going somewhere God told him not to do. His wife, Naomi, her name means my delight or sweetness. And then you've got the sons. The sons' names means sickly. One of them means sickly. And the other one means destruction. I'm not sure what these kids did to get these names, 
and it's, I wouldn't name my kids that, but so my God is king and sweetness have these two kids sickly and destruction. Look what happens in verse number three. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So Naomi's father, husband dies, and she's left with sickly and destruction. Look what verse 4 says. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years. So her husband dies, she's left with these two sons, and they end up marrying Moabite women. Israel was forbidden from marrying anyone of the Moabites. They were considered by God a cursed people. They were considered a wicked people, a pagan people. And God had told Israel, have nothing to do with them. But her sons, they're in Moab, where they shouldn't be anyway, and they, they marry these two women, and they live there about 10 years. Then look at verse number five. Then Malhan, sickly, and Chilion, destruction, they died. And also both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. So her sons die, and she, she gets word that God, the, the, the plague is gone in Israel, and God has taken off the plague and once again blessed Israel, and so now they're doing okay, the famine's gone, and so she says, you know what, I don't have anything here, I don't have any family here, I've got these two daughters-in-law, but they have no children, so I'm, I'm, I'm husbandless, I'm sonless, I've got nothing here, I'm going to go back home. Look what the Bible says in verse number 8. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, go return each to her mother's house, the Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. Now, this is unheard of in this culture. In this culture, if you were married and your husband died and your mother-in-law and your father-in-law and your mother-in-law was still alive or you know, your, your husband's uh, family was still alive, you weren't free just to go and marry someone else. You had to marry, first of all, you had to marry a younger brother if he wasn't married yet, but they're dead. There is no brother. So typically what you would do is you would wait for your mother-in-law to have another child, wait for that child to grow up, and then marry that child. I know it's weird, but that's what they did. If the mother-in-law was too old to have children or didn't have a husband like Naomi, then you would have to marry another close relative. But they don't have any. There's, there's no one for them to marry as far as Naomi knows. She thinks everyone's gone. Now, in that situation, if there was no one to marry and there was no one to carry on the family name, then you were just basically doomed to be a widow the rest of your life. But Naomi is releasing these two women of this burden. She's saying, look, I, there's no need for you to come back to Bethlehem with me. There's no reason for you to come back, to leave your family, to leave your homeland, to leave everything you know, stay here, Find another, find a good man, get married, have kids. I release you from the burden of staying with me for the rest of your lives. Then look at verse number 14. And they lived, lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whether thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge, and thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Wherefore thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do to, to so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. And when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left, speaking unto her. So, Orpah, one of the daughter-in-law, she, she cries, she hugs Naomi, she hugs Ruth, and she goes back home. But Ruth, she won't leave. She dedicates herself to Naomi. But it's, it's deeper than that. Because I want you to look at it again. Uh, verse 15, she says, uh, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. She's going back home. 
She's going back to worship her pagan gods. and She's, she's going back to her old life. Go do what she's going to do. But look what Ruth says. Entreat me not to leave thee, nor return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. And thy God, big G, shall be my God. Right here, Ruth gets saved. She's turned from her pagan gods. She's looked at Ruth and says, I believe that your God is the one true God, and I'm going to serve him just like you do. I'm going to live in the land of your God. I'm going to serve your God. I'm going to worship your God. Your God is now my God, and I'm forsaking everything else. It is a beautiful picture of conversion that God gives us here. Then look at verse 19. So they went, so they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, is this Naomi? Now remember, Naomi's name means sweet. Is this that sweet little girl that left here so long ago with her two little boys and her husband? And Naomi, and she said unto them, call me not Naomi, call me not sweet, but Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now this is a it's a pretty sad statement by Naomi. And she gets home, and everyone's glad to see her, and they're calling out her name. And she says, you know, you're calling me happy and sweet, but that's not me anymore. God has hurt me. God has treated me unfairly. God has done wickedly to me. So I'm not sweet. I am bitter and hurt and angry against God. She says that God has punished her, but that's not what happened. God's not punishing her. She is suffering the consequences of her decisions and her husband's decision. They're the ones that decided to leave Bethlehem. They're the ones that decided to leave the promised land and go to Moab. They're the ones that, that chose to leave the presence and protection and promises of God to go to a place God said, you're not even allowed to go over there or mingle with those people or have anything to do with them. And then she says, I left full and I've come back empty. But that's not the case either. She left with her husband and her two sons, sickly and destruction. And she's come back with Ruth. Ruth means friendship. She left with her family, but she's come back with, with her daughter-in-law, her friend, who is going to do more for her than her family ever had done. Now, she's, they get back there, and they do what they, you know, they, they have no food. They have no jobs. They have no prospects. These, are, these, again, are two women. They are widowed women. They have nobody to support them no one to take care of them, no one to really do anything for them. And so in this situation, in this, this culture, they, were, they had no hope. They couldn't, neither one of them could just go out and find another man and let them, you know, find a sugar daddy to take care of them. They couldn't really go out and get a job. They only could do one thing, and that's beg or scavenge for food. So that's exactly what Ruth does. Look in chapter number two, starting in verse number one. <coughs> and Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Now, to us, we understand what's going on here, but you've got to put yourself again. You've got to put yourself in the position of a Jewish reader. You are a, a Jew during the Old Testament times. You are reading this book, and you're, it, it, you, you are seeing right here that God is setting up a love story because they understood the only person that can help these two women is a kinsman. Now that word kinsman there, we're going to get to it in a minute, but it literally means redeemer. Look at verse number two. And Ruth the Moabite said unto Naomi, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, go my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field 
after the reapers, and her hap was light on the part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Remember, Elimelech's the, king, the husband who's dead, and Boaz is related to Elimelech. He is a kinsman. He's a relative of Naomi and, by marriage, a relative of Ruth. But Ruth doesn't know this. She just says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to glean in the fields and whoever allows me, whoever, you know, whoever's side I find grace and whatever doesn't chase me off, I'm going to glean in the field. Now, this is what God had commanded Israel to do to help take care of the poor. He commanded them, when you're harvesting your field, don't take everything. Don't harvest all the corn. Don't harvest all the grapes. Don't harvest all the wheat. Leave some behind. You know, because you pass through, you get everything you can, and then what people would normally do is they would go through a second or a third time to make sure they got it all. God said, just go through once. Get as much as you can the first time and leave the rest for the poor. Leave the rest for those who, who don't have anything, and that way you can help take care of them. And that was God's way of providing for the poor in the land. And God still wants his people to take care of the poor. You know, this wasn't just an Old Testament thing. God wants his children today to be generous and help take care of those who are less fortunate and don't have what God has blessed us with. That's why the community cupboard and the community closet are so important because we are, we are helping those who don't have what we are blessing them with what God's blessed us with. And so God gave this command to help take care of the poor. So she goes out to, you know, follow the reapers to kind of get some of what's left behind. And the Bible says she just so happens to end up at the field of Boaz. A distant relative. Now, there's a couple of things to note here. Saying that Boaz was a distant relative is great news for Ruth and Naomi. There, there, there may be someone who can help them. There may be someone who can provide for them and, and help them get back on their feet. It also lets the Jewish audience know that there's a the potential of romance. Now, I know most of us, we don't look for romance at family reunions, but that's kind of what the culture was in this time period. Remember, Ruth, she's, she's not a, a cousin or a sister. She's, she's an in-law, so it's not as bad as that. But in this culture, it was common practice. The second thing to note is a phrase, she just happened to come. This is repeated several times in the story, and it's meant as irony. She just happened to stumble upon this particular field. This type of coincidence doesn't just happen. And that's what God's trying to let the audience know. This isn't a coincidence. This isn't some happy accident. This is something happening by, that is being orchestrated by a sovereign God. See, in the book of Ruth, there's no incredible miracles. There's, there's no part of the Red Seas, there's no walls falling down, there's no wonderful, incredible displays of God's power, there's just sovereign coincidences that God is orchestrating for his honor and for his glory. There are sovereignly controlled circumstances. Here's the thing, God works in both ways. God works in the great big miracles. God works in the Red Sea parting. God works in the, the person being healed. And look, we, I've seen some miracles where God's working. I've seen people who, who have, should have not survived an illness or should have died. I've seen God touch them and heal them miraculously. I've seen marriages restored that should have never been restored. I've seen incredible miracles of God. But God also works in the everyday. God also works in the, the circumstances of our life. And we tend to miss God working in our everyday circumstances because we're too busy looking for the big miracles. But God works in all of it. God sovereignly works in every situation, every circumstance for our life. Coincidence is just God's way of remaining anonymous. God works in everything. Then look at verse number four. <clears throat> and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless thee. Now here's another coincidence. In the Hebrew, it's that same phrase, just happened. Boaz just happened to come down to Bethlehem. He just happened 
to want to check on his field. And remember, verse 1 says that he's a, he's a wealthy man. He has a lot of property. He has a lot of things he has to kind of keep his, his watch over and make sure it's going right. And so him just happening to come to Bethlehem and him just happening to come to this field at this time when Ruth just so happens to be there is not a coincidence. It is God working out the circumstances. Now, the word name Boaz, it means strength. And so Boaz, he's, he's a man's man. He's wealthy. He's, he's popular. You know, he comes in, he goes, the Lord be with you. And all of his workers say, the Lord be with you too. They are kind of greeting him. He's a, he's a well-liked, wealthy man. And he's, uh, he's loved by all of his employees. And so look at verse number, uh, chapter 2 again. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said to his servant that was set over the reapers, whose damsel is this? Now, if you underline your Bible, I want you to underline that question, whose damsel is this? Why? Because that question is the most important question in the entire book of Ruth. Whose woman is this? Now, he's not, he's not literally asking who's, you know, who owns her. He's saying, who is this? What is, what is her story? What is it about her that I should take notice of? Is she a Moabite that I should despise? Is she a stranger that I should mistrust and be skeptical of? Is she a damaged person to be avoided? And that's how the culture would have viewed her. Again, you're a Jewish reader. You're reading this. She's a Moabite. She's already to be despised because... She's of that wicked nation. That the Moabites, you know, they, they, they were regarded as cursed because the Moabites were the result of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. So they're a cursed, hated people. She's a Moabite. Secondly, she's a widow woman. She's broken. She's got a past. She's hopeless. She's helpless. So don't want to get involved in that. Her life is messy. Don't want to get involved in that. Plus, you know, she's a stranger, so avoid her. And so the culture would have looked at Ruth and thought, there's nothing redeemable. There's nothing of value in her. Just forget about her and go on. She's poor. They viewed that as a sign of God's judgment. Plus, you know, let's just be honest here. She probably didn't look the best right then. She's in the field you know, grubbing around through the, the leftover dirt and the leftover wheat, trying to get as much food as she can. So she's, she's probably dirty. Her hair's probably unkempt. She's probably not smelling too good because it's hot and she's sweating. That's not the way you want to look when you're looking for a man. You know, most women, they want to get their hair done, get their makeup done, put on some nice clothes, smell nice, put on some, you know, lemon verbena as they do in the prairie, you know, little house on the prairie. They want to be presentable. She ain't presentable. She's looking rough. But Boaz takes notice of her. She's not the picture of someone who is desirable. She's not the picture of attractiveness and beauty. But Boaz is a different kind of man. Boaz is giving us a picture of God's love for us. Then look at verse number 8. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter, go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. I ha have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go into the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Now this, this is an incredible thing for Boaz to do. He doesn't know her. They tell him she's that Moabite girl that came back with Naomi. So he knows, well, she's a Moabite, she's a widow, she's poor. She should be, a, you know, she's, she's nothing to be desired, but he goes out of her way to treat her well. He tells her, don't leave this field, I'll take care of you. Don't go looking for another field to, to you know, get some food. I'll make sure you're provided for. I'll protect you. I'll make sure that my men don't hurt you or harass you or bother you. And you know what? I'll even go even further. I'll make my men serve you. He says, if you're thirsty, go to the water that the men have drawn. See, again, in this culture, women serve the men. 
They would have been the one to draw the water. Plus, she's a Moabite. In Jewish culture, any Moabite that's living among the Jews, she was a servant. She was a slave. She should have been the one drawing the water. But Boaz says, they'll serve you. They'll take care of you, and I'll make sure you're provided for. He is treating her like family, not an outcast. Look at verse number 14. And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached uh, her parched corn, and she did eat, and was uh, sufficed and left. And when she was risen up to glean, uh, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not, and let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. So she gleaned in the field until even, and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an epath of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought forth, and she gave to her uh, that she had re- reserved after she was sufficed. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today, and where wouldst thou be blessed? Uh, blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had brought and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. So Boaz, he, he goes even further. He lets her eat with them. Again, unheard of. She's a Moabite widow. And he's saying, hey, not only am I going to you know, make sure you have water, make sure nobody touches you, when it's lunch, I want you to come eat with us. And eat as much as you can. Eat until you're full. And then she gets up to go glean, and he goes to his men and says, hey, you know, leave her alone. Let her you know, glean as much as she can. But here's something else I want you to do. As you're harvesting, I want you to throw a little bit extra for her. Take some of the good stuff that's mine, rightfully mine, some of the good you've already harvested and prepared and drop it for her. And so she comes through, she gets all she can, she gets all they've left, and she leaves with what the Bible says in the epath of flour. That is a huge sack of barley. A lot of theologians said that what she gleaned that day was enough to provide for her and Naomi for up to three months. It's a huge amount of of money and food for her that Boaz has willingly and eagerly given her. She has done so well. She gets home. Naomi's like, what did you do to get this? How, how did this happen? You know, did you, did you rob someone? What, what happened? How did you get so blessed? And whose field did you go on? And Ruth says, oh, I was just at this guy's field named Boaz. Now, again, Boaz is a relative, but Ruth doesn't know that. But Naomi does. So Naomi is, now knows, hey, there is a near kinsman. There is someone who can help us. And it seems as if he's willing to get involved and help us. So Ruth, Naomi knows the potential that's there. So look at verse number 20. And Naomi said unto her, her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, the man is a near kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. Now, that phrase, uh, one of our next kinsmen, in the Hebrew, it's one word, ga'al. And it literally means redeemer. She goes, He's, he is someone who can redeem us who can restore us to what we had lost. Now, the word is vital in the story. In those days, if you were in debt, you could deed your property to pay off the debt. Now, it wasn't like selling it. You were basically leasing the land for someone else to use. They would pay you one time, and you would give them complete use of the land. But the land was still yours, and you could get the rights to it back by paying off your debt if you ever could. It's a lot like uh, what England has with the royal family. You know, the royal family, uh, way back during the, the, the uh, colonial war, King George, who, you know, uh, interesting, interestingly enough, he was crazy, and his poop was purple. Didn't know that, did you? He had a mental disease that made his poop purple. It was weird. But he was in so much debt 
but he had all this land. And so what he did was he leased the land back to England, all the farmland that he had. And he had hundreds of thousands of acres. And he leased that land back to them with the stipulation that the, the nation of, his, of England would take care of the royal family forever. And the royal family would still possess the land, just not get any taxes or any, any lease off of it. So the royal family still owns all that land. And if England ever decides to get rid of the royal family, they can just claim that land back and you know, still make more money than they're making now. So that's kind of what they did in these days. You would lease your land or deed your land to someone. And if you ever were able to raise the money, you could pay off your debt. But you, you, so you always had the opportunity to, to buy it back. But if you couldn't buy it back, if you couldn't raise the money, then a relative could, a redeemer. Someone, a close relative could say, well, I want that land to stay in the family, so I'm going to pay off their debt. I'm going to redeem their land and their property for them. And Elimelech, before he left, he, he deeded his land to pay off some of his debt. So Ruth and Naomi, they own land in Bethlehem, but they can't use it because they can't pay off the debt. But Boaz can. He's a kinsman redeemer who can purchase this land. And so a kinsman redeemer had to be three things. They had to be the closest living relative alive that could buy back the land. They had to have the resources available to pay off the debt and they had to want to pay off the debt. Now, Boaz is a relative. He's in a position financially to pay off the debt. He has a lot of money, but they're not sure if he wants to do it. So they're not sure if he wants to be their redeemer. So Ruth, or Naomi, she puts forth a plan to discover if Boaz wants to be the redeemer or not. So look over in chapter 3, starting in verse number 3. <clears throat> this is what Naomi is telling Ruth. Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee, and put on thy raiment upon thee. Again, she's like, you dirty, you smelly. Take a bath, take a shower, put on some clean clothes. And so wash thyself, uh, and anoint thee, and put on raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man until he have, uh, shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. Then skip down to verse 7. Then Boaz, when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn, and she came softly and covered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight... Uh, that the man was afraid and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, I know this is kind of a weird thing to do. And if you're trying to, you know, attract a man, I don't recommend just sleeping at his feet when he falls to sleep. It's, it's weird. And if you're a dude and you do this to a girl, you're going to go to jail. So to us, we're like, what is going on here? But again, in this culture, this was a way for Ruth to signify to Boaz that if he was willing she would marry him. It's, it's basically Ruth proposing to Boaz. No ring, no on one knee, but Ruth is making a marriage proclamation to Boaz saying, hey, if you're willing, if you will have me, I'd be willing, I'm, I'm, I'm up to marrying you. And so he is, she is asking him to be her kinsman redeemer, but there's a small complication. Yes, Boaz is a relative, but there's another relative that is closer in relation to them, and this guy gets first dibs. Boaz legally has to let this other relative have the opportunity to be the king's redeemer before he can. And so he, he finds this man in chapter 4. He finds this guy, and he wants to see if he's willing to step up to be the king's redeemer. Look at verse number 1 in chapter 4. Then went Boaz up to the gate and set him down. And there, behold, the kinsman, again, that word kinsman is the word redeemer, of whom Boaz spake came by unto him. He said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So this, this man, this kinsman redeemer that has the opportunity to be the kinsman, we don't know his name because he doesn't step up. 
And so he is really, in the story, he's insignificant. And in verse, so Boaz, he explains the situation. He goes, hey, Elimelech's wife is back. And, you know, uh, Elimelech has some land that he leased out before he, he left and he's died. And so now, you know, we, we have the opportunity to purchase this land or pay off the debt and we can take this land as our own and of course I want to do it but you're first in line so I want to give you the opportunity to buy this land and redeem the land of Elimelech so his name goes on and so in verse 4 the guy says yeah man this sounds great I'll do it he just thinks he's getting a great deal on some land he just thinks I'm going to pay some a little fee a little back taxes maybe and I'm going to get this land I'm going to be able to use it and it's going to be wonderful for me and for my family but in verse 5 Boaz tells him the whole story so look at verse 5 in chapter 4 Then said Boaz what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess the wife of the dead to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance now what this phrase means, because you're looking like, oh, well, it just means he has to pay Ruth and Naomi for the land. No, 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 no. What he's saying is, hey, when you buy the land, it also comes with a mother-in-law. And who wants that? But it also comes with this Moabite woman, Ruth, who you not only have to, you have, you have to marry her, and you have to have kids with her so that her husband's name continues. So you're not having kids for you. You're having kids for her dead husband. She's a Moabite. You get her and a mother-in-law, and suddenly the guy's like, you know what? This ain't that great a deal. And so he's like, you know what? I don't want to do this because I thought I was getting land. If I have to get land and a wife, first of all, she's a Moabite, and I don't, you know, they're forbidden to marry anyway. Then I got to have kids. It's going to hurt my kids' inheritance. And so I just, I don't want to do this. And so Boaz says, well, then I'll do it. And it's a weird little story. He says, I'll take it. Here's my shoe. It's, it's again, it's odd culture, but he gives him his shoe and gets some land. And it's a weird story, but it ends in a beautiful way. So Boaz gets exactly what he wanted. He is able to be the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. And so he wants to redeem Boaz. So Boaz wants to redeem Ruth. So Boaz, he marries Ruth. But the most important passage is found in chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 4, look at verse number 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife, and when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, without a redeemer, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. Now, that's important there because sons were vitally important in this day. Sons provided for you. They protected you. They took care of you in your old age. And they're saying, you know, Ruth, she's better than it. If you had seven sons, she is better to you than if that were the case. And Naomi took the child and laid it on her bosom and became nurse to it. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. <clears throat> so the book of Ruth ends with this beautiful picture of Naomi, this woman who came back bitter and angry and resentful, and now she's holding her grandson. She's nourishing her grandson. She's been restored. She's been redeemed. She's been taken care of. She is, and God has turned her bitterness back into sweetness. But that's not the best part. Again, look at the end of verse 17. <coughs> and the woman, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Her grandson grew up to have a son named Jesse, who grew up to have another son named David, who grew up to be the king of Israel, who grew up to be the, the, the king that, is in the, that has Jesus in his lineage. But it's even better than that. I want you to flip over to Matthew chapter 1. <coughs> if you can't flip there fast enough, it's on the screen, but I want you to look at Matthew chapter 1. 
We're going to start at verse number five. It says, in Salmon, this is, again, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. So we're getting the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter one. <coughs> and Salmon begot Booz, that is Boaz, of Rechab, or Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begot Solomon after her, had been the wife of Uriah. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here in these verses is, again, this is a lineage, the, the genealogies of Jesus Christ, and in these two verses, three women are named. Nowhere else in, in, a, in a lineage or a genealogy of, in the Bible or in ancient genealogy that's ever been discovered have women been named. Now look, I know that offends a lot of people. I didn't write it. I didn't do it. So don't blame me. I'm just telling you what the thing is. Women were not, they were, they were always the sons of someone. You know, the husband, the father begat the son. The son begat, you know, so the women weren't named. But in these th two verses, we have three women that are named. And look at the women. You have Rahab. What's Rahab known as? Rahab the harlot. Rahab was a Canaanite. She was a, a Canaanite in Jericho that when Joshua and Israel came through, she helped Israel. She accepted God as her Savior and helped them, and God spared her, but it was Rahab the Canaanite harlot. Then... Not only that, <coughs> but you have Ruth here. And it says, Ruth the Moabite. So even if you're in the New Testament reading it, you know, well, this woman, she's not even supposed to be in, in Jerusalem or in the line of Christ because she is a Moabite. She is a forbidden woman. Then, of course, you've got David with, you know, he has Solomon with Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba's not named, but her husband is. You know, David who had Solomon with the wife of Uriah. So right off the bat, you have an, a, women with unwanted pasts in the line of Jesus. You have a Canaanite prostitute, a Moabite woman, a Moabite widow, and a woman that had an affair. But then look at the end of the lineage in verse number 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, that's the other woman named in the, in the lineage, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. All these women, all these shady pasts, all these undesirable people in society are grandmothers of Jesus Christ. You know, when David was king, Nathan the prophet tells him that the Messiah will come through his family, through Ruth's family. Through this Moabite widow, God is going to bring salvation to all of mankind. And God kept his word, but it, it gets even better than that. Not only did God send the Messiah through David and through Ruth and Boaz, who was Ruth's kinsman redeemer, but Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. See, Jesus has the right to redeem us because he's our relative, born of a woman. But not only that, he has the resources to redeem us. See, we all, like Elimelech who sold his land, we sold our right to fellowship with God and to go to heaven and to spend eternity with God. We sold it for sin. And God said, if you want to be redeemed, then the, the price for that is sinless perfection. And we could never pay it, but Jesus could. He was sinless. He was perfect and he completely fulfilled the law. He had the, the power to redeem us because he has power over death and over hell and over the grave. But even greater than that, Jesus wanted to redeem us. See, Boaz didn't redeem Ruth because he had to and there was nothing better. He wanted to redeem her. He went out of his way to do something that he didn't even have to do. He could have forgotten about the situation. He could have just found another relative and said, hey, that's your problem, deal with it, have fun, I'm out. But he went out of his way to redeem Ruth and Naomi because he loved her. God didn't have to redeem us. 
He didn't have to leave heaven to come to earth, be born of a virgin, live a perfect, sinless life, completely fulfill the law. He didn't have to die on the cross for my sins and your sins and have the wrath of God for the sin of mankind poured out on him and pay our sin debt. He didn't have to go to the grave and rise again three days later to reconcile us to God the Father. He didn't have to do any of it, but he wanted to do it because he loved us. Just like Boaz wanted to redeem Ruth because he loved her. See, Ruth is not just a beautiful love story. It's not just a romantic story for, you know, young Jewish girls to read and giggle over a Hallmark story. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It shows us three things about God's love for us. Here's the first thing it tells us. These are real quick. I know it's already late, but I'm going to go real quick here. The first thing it shows us is God is all about Redemption. The word redemption or redeemer is used 23 times in the book of Ruth, in just four chapters. In this book, the unloved are loved. The poor are restored. The inheritance that was lost because of sin is redeemed through the love and generosity of others. In this book, bitterness becomes sweet. Ruth begins the book of Ruth begins with death and it ends with life and it ends with a life that brings salvation to the entire world so Naomi goes from a barren bitter forsaken sunless widow that is a beggar to the blessed grandmother of the son of God and that's the theme of Ruth and that's the theme of the Bible redemption the gospel is about redeeming those that are hopeless and helpless. And that is every single one of us. See, we were created to be children of God. We were created to be in his presence constantly. But we sold that privilege and became slaves to sin. But Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, he loved us when we were unlovely. And he redeemed us and our inheritance because we couldn't. Second thing it shows us is God uses the unexpected in redemption. You know, Ruth has everything against her. She's poor. She's childless. She's from a hated group of people. This happened during the time of Samson. You know, Samson, the Israelite, the, the one who God said, he's going to, you know, he's going to be not going to cut his hair. He's going to, you know, be, be dedicated to me from the, the womb. He's never going to cut his hair, never going to touch a dud thing, never going to drink wine. He broke all of that. But Samson, who was, who God said, this is who I'm going to use to help the nation while he's forsaking God and giving everything up for some time with Delilah, Ruth, the Moabite widow woman, is forsaking everything to come back and help Naomi. She is used by God to save the nation and to save the world. And this, this points to the fact that Jesus, the one who would save us, he didn't come as a mighty conquering hero. He came as a meek, obedient servant, like Ruth. Someone no one would expect Someone no one would assume what could do it. And a lot of people missed him because of that. And what does that mean for us this morning? That means that God can and will use you in the story of redemption for someone else. And he's put you in their life to be, to be part of that story. We just have to submit to him and allow him to use us. Say, well, I feel unworthy. God uses those who feel unworthy. See, God doesn't use the ones who think they're, they're worthy. Samson thought he was worthy. That's why he was so arrogant and prideful, and God couldn't use him. But he used a Moabite widow woman to save the world. That brings us to the third thing. Those who experience salvation are to live the gospel. See, this entire book, it shows us how Israel was supposed to respond in love to other people because of God's love for them. That's why the central question is, whose woman is this? That's the question we have to ask about people in our lives. You know, the refugee, the immigrant, you know, whether legal or not. And look, I'm, I'm going to make some of y'all mad here. Uh, probably anyway, I don't care. 
Uh, I've seen a lot of people, I don't think any of y'all, but people post on Facebook, they're so mad, you know, Biden's spending X amount of tax dollars on, on, on uh, hotel rooms for homeless uh, veterans, or not homeless veterans, uh, he, he should, but homeless immigrants, people are like, oh, we shouldn't do that. You know what, I don't think we should spend tax money on it, but I think we should take care of them. God's commanded us to take care of the poor. Oh, they're illegal immigrants. So was Ruth. So was Jesus. He was an illegal immigrant coming down from heaven. Say, well, they got to do it right. I agree. But as God's children, we're to love them. We're to take care of them. We're to do whatever we can to provide for them. That includes the homeless that are our homeless vets and our homeless Americans. We should love them and provide for them and take care of them and not look at them and think, well, they probably made some bad decisions and that's why they're homeless. Doesn't matter. You know, every one of us, we're just a few bad decisions from being just like those homeless in the streets tonight. Don't think you're not. Oh, I would never get that. Yes, you could. A few bad decisions, you're there tonight. Say, I would never do that. You don't know. So don't look down on people but say, how can I help these people? How can I love these people? Look, we got some guy, I don't know who he is. Uh, I've, I've seen him a couple times. We got some homeless guy that camps out in the woods every once in a while. And uh, I've, I've seen him. I've talked to him. I don't care. I've asked, hey, man, can I get you, can I get you something to eat? Can I buy you some food? Can, you know, can I do something for you? Can I help you? No, I'm, and he's fine. He's, 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 a, he's, a, he's a crazy vet. He's got some mental issues. I don't want to get too involved with him, but I pray for him. And I try to help him as much as I can. And some people say, oh, you got to get him out of here. No, you know, I mean, he's not doing anything. He's not hurting anything. I'm keeping an eye on him. If he starts damaging stuff, I'll, you know, we'll deal with it. But right now, all he's doing is camping out because he can't sleep inside because he's got PTSD. He's not bothering us. We're not bothering him. He stays, you know, I want to help him. So God, it's not like, oh, who's that homeless crazy vet? No, it's that is a guy God has put in my life for me to reach somehow. I don't know how. I've given him tracks. I've tried to talk to him. He's very skittish and sometimes runs away, but I've managed to talk to him a few times. But all he wants to do is just every couple months, I'll see his tent down there, see him sitting there, and then he's gone for a couple months. He's just here once in a while. But God's put him there for me to love and to show him. And so when I look at him, I'm not saying, who's that guy to be here? But who is that guy that God has placed in my life to be a blessing to them? So who are they? Are they a problem to be dealt with? Or are they people made in the image of God that Jesus died to save and he's put them in our lives to love them? You know, the divorced woman, the divorced man, the woman who had an abortion, are they examples to hold up and show what not to do? Look at this woman. Look what she did. That's what not to do. Or are they people with a broken past that Jesus, they are someone who Jesus has never stopped loving and he gave his blood to redeem them and he wants to use us to show that love for him. Those redeemed by Jesus should become redeemers of others. Don't look down on people and say, well, they're just, they're not worth it. In God's eyes, I, don't, I know some of you, you're like, well, I was raised in church, born in church. You know, I've been in church my whole life. doesn't matter. Compared to God's holiness, you're just as bad as them. We're, we're not worthy to be redeemed by God. We're not deserving for God to come down and die for us and shed his blood for us and pay our sin debt and rise again. We're not worthy of that, but he did it anyway. So we look at everyone in our life, everyone around us, and we're to say, that is someone just like me that God died to redeem, and it's my job to make sure they hear about his love. They may not get saved, but you know what? You'll never know unless you try. Those who are redeemed by the love of God should be redeemers of other people. You know, Ruth's story, it's a beautiful story, but it's our story. It shows us how God loved us when no one else did. Where God did for us what we can never do for ourselves. He came for us, he died for us, he paid our sin debt and rose again 
to redeem us to God the Father when we were undeserving, when we were unworthy, when we didn't even care about him. He did for us what no one else would and what no one else could. He redeemed us. Let us be a people who share that redemption with everybody we can. Thank you.